Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the murder of Cassie Jo Stoddard, also known as the Scream Murder. But first, your true crime headlines. After five years and numerous delays, the trial of Ronald Lee Haskell Jr. is underway in the state of Texas. Haskell stands accused of six counts of capital murder for the execution-style killings of six members of his estranged wife's family. Haskell had been married to Melanie Lyon since 2002, and the couple lived for most of that time in Logan, Utah with their four children. Their marriage was fraught with domestic violence, including Haskell's arrest in 2008 for allegedly dragging his wife by her hair and striking her on the head. He pled guilty to simple assault after the incident, but the couple stayed together. In July of 2013, Melanie filed a protective order against her husband. The following month, she filed for divorce. Melanie decided to relocate with the children to Spring, Texas, where her parents and sister lived, and Haskell went to stay with his parents in Southern California. One week before the killings, Ronald Lee Haskell's mother contacted San Marcos police and asked for a restraining order against her son. After a particularly vicious argument, during which Haskell had threatened to kill her, police attempted to find Haskell to investigate the incident, but they were unable to locate him. On July 9th of 2014, Ronald Lee Haskell disguised himself as a FedEx delivery driver and approached the home of Stephen and Katie Stay. Katie was the sister of Melanie and had assisted her in her relocation to Texas. When Haskell arrived to the Stay's home, their oldest daughter Cassidy, 15 at the time, was home alone. She did not recognize her former uncle, but told the man that her parents were not home. Haskell left, but returned a short time later. This time he identified himself to Cassidy, then forced his way into the house and tied her up. When Stephen and Katie Stay arrived home with their four younger children, he tied each of them up as well. He demanded that they tell him where his ex-wife and children were. When they did not comply, he shot each of them in the back of the head, execution style. Stephen and Katie Stay died, as did their four children, 13-year-old Brian, 9-year-old Emily, 7-year-old Rebecca, and little Zachary, just four years old. Cassidy was also shot, but the bullet grazed her head, and she survived the shooting, playing dead until Haskell left the home. Once he was gone, Cassidy called police and told them what had happened, and that Haskell was on his way to her grandparents' home. Police were able to intercept him there, and he surrendered after an hours-long standoff. Haskell's attorneys are planning to argue an insanity defense in his trial, and he is facing the death penalty if convicted. A former exotic dancer was convicted of first-degree murder and armed robbery in the 2016 death of an elderly Missouri man. 48-year-old Ava Haish and her boyfriend, 37-year-old Jesse Worley, were charged in connection with the death of 68-year-old Daniel Taylor, who Haish was acquainted with through her profession. Worley, who pled guilty in 2017 and is serving a 40-year sentence, testified at Haish's trial that the couple had set out to rob Taylor and that they killed him so that he could not identify them. Taylor was found dead in his home in December of 2016 with his throat cut 
nearly decapitated. Though Worley delivered the fatal stab wounds to the victim, he testified that Hayes suggested him as the target of their robbery and handed Worley the weapon that he used in the killing. Hayes' trial saw 16 delays before finally proceeding, including numerous complaints by Hayes that she was receiving improper medical treatment in jail. She also requested a restraining order against some employees of the jail where she was held, for the judge to recuse himself and for her to be allowed to represent herself. All of those requests were denied. Ava Heche faces up to 60 years for the murder conviction and 30 years for the armed robbery conviction. Her sentencing should take place in about six to eight weeks. The family of a man who was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer inside a Southern California Costco store earlier this year have filed suit against the LAPD the officer involved, and the city of Los Angeles. Joined by their attorneys, Paula and Russell French told reporters their side of the story of the deadly Father's Day altercation. Mr. and Mrs. French were shopping with their son, 32-year-old Kenneth French, who suffered from schizophrenia and was mostly nonverbal. At a sausage sampling station inside the store, some sort of altercation took place between Kenneth French and another shopper, Salvador Sanchez, who was an off-duty Los Angeles police officer. During the altercation, French shoved or pushed Sanchez, who was holding his young son. The shove briefly knocked Sanchez to the ground, according to eyewitness statements. When he regained his footing, Sanchez handed his young son to his wife and drew his gun, identifying himself as a police officer. Mrs. French told reporters that she begged Sanchez not to shoot before he opened fire, killing Kenneth French and severely injuring both of his parents. Kenneth French suffered two gunshot wounds to the back. He died of internal bleeding sometime later. Mrs. French was also shot in the back with the bullet exiting through her stomach. She survived the shooting, but has undergone seven surgeries since the incident. Her husband, Russell, was shot in the abdomen and has also endured multiple surgeries, including the removal of his kidney. Attorneys for the French family called the shooting completely excessive and unnecessary and are asking for unspecific damages in their lawsuit. They have also asked that surveillance video from the Costco be released to the public, though a judge ruled last month to block the release of the video, citing an ongoing criminal investigation. Mr. Sanchez was placed on administrative leave after the incident. He maintains that the shooting was justified and claims that he acted in self-defense. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Cassie Joe Stoddard. But first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode, a horror film brought to life. This is the story of Cassie Jo Stoddard. In 2006, 16-year-old Cassie Jo Stoddard was a junior at Pocatello High School in Idaho. Cassie was well-liked by both friends and teachers, was a straight-A student, 
enjoyed drawing and music, and hoped one day to become a lawyer. Friends described Cassie as smart, responsible, motivated, trustworthy, and kind. A beautiful girl, the kind of person you could always talk to, and who always wanted to help others. Cassie, her older sister Christy, and her younger brother Andrew were raised mostly by their maternal grandparents. She had a lot of things on her mind for the future, Cassie's grandmother said. She wanted to go to college. She wanted a career. Cassie's younger brother, Andrew, described her as the headstrong one in the family. She was the one I always looked up to, even though she wasn't the oldest one. She really was a role model. She was really smart, doing good, and had a lot going for her. In 2006, Cassie decided that she was ready for her own car. To earn the money, she started working as a babysitter and a house sitter for friends and family. On the weekend of September 22nd, Cassie's aunt and uncle were taking the family out of town for a couple of days and offered Cassie $60 to watch their house and care for their pets while they were away. Cassie accepted and asked them if her boyfriend, Matt Beckham, could come over and keep her company while she watched the house. The home was in a remote area called Whispering Cliffs, and Cassie wanted to invite Matt over to watch a movie. Matt and Cassie had been dating for about five months, and Cassie's family trusted her and the young man, who had always treated her with respect. Cassie's aunt and uncle had no problem granting the couple permission to be together in the house unsupervised. On Friday, September 22nd, around 5.30 p.m., Cassie's mother dropped her off at the house and planned to pick her up on Sunday when the family returned. Matt arrived soon after. But around 8.30 p.m., Matt and Cassie heard a knock at the door. Their classmates, Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik, had come to the house expecting to find a party. Matt had invited the two friends over to join them for their movie night. Brian and Tori were movie geeks. Brian was an aspiring filmmaker, and Tori was obsessed with horror films. Cassie was not happy. Her aunt and uncle had told her no parties, and she had only been given permission to have Matt in the house. But Cassie agreed to let Brian and Tori stay and watch the movie with them, and the four friends decided to watch Kill Bill. But around 9.30 p.m., Brian and Tori said that they would rather go to the movie theater and see something else. They left the house, and Matt and Cassie were alone at last. Around 15 minutes later, Cassie and Matt were watching the film when the power suddenly went out. There was no storm, no wind. Cassie was nervous. Matt called his mother 
and asked for permission to stay the night at the house with Cassie because she didn't want to be alone. But Matt's mother refused. Suddenly, the power came back on. Matt decided to call Tori to let him know that he would be leaving. But Matt could barely hear Tori, who was whispering, saying that he and Brian were in the movie theater. Matt said goodbye to Cassie, and around 11 p.m., Matt's mother arrived at the house to pick him up. What Matt didn't know was that he would never see Cassie again, because Tori and Brian weren't at the movies. Tori and Brian were in the house. And now, they had what they had been waiting for. Cassie was alone. Tori and Brian had re-entered the house through the back door, which they had unlocked before they left, and were now hiding in the basement next to the circuit breaker, dressed in black robes with frightening masks and armed with knives. The boys cut the power off a second time and waited. They hoped that Cassie would come downstairs to flip the breakers. They waited and waited, but Cassie stayed put, too afraid to go down. After a while, Brian and Tori decided that if Cassie wouldn't come to them, they would go to her. They put on their masks, grabbed their knives, and went upstairs, slamming the door in order to terrify Cassie. The last thing that Cassie saw were two dark figures wearing Halloween masks coming after her with knives. Brian and Tori attacked Cassie in the living room and stabbed her to death. On Sunday, September 24th, Cassie's aunt and uncle returned home. Cassie's 13-year-old cousin was the first to enter the house. She found Cassie laying dead on the living room floor in a pool of blood. Stab marks covering her arms, torso, and neck. The cordless phone heartbreakingly a few feet away from her body, just out of reach. Cassie had been stabbed 30 times. The autopsy revealed that 9 to 12 of her stab wounds had been fatal. Defense wounds on her arms showed that Cassie didn't go down without a fight. When police arrived to investigate the crime scene, they noticed that there were no signs of forced entry, that nothing had been taken from the house, and that there were no signs of sexual assault. This told police that Cassie most likely knew her attacker and willingly let them inside. Suspicion first fell on the only person known to be present in the house with Cassie that weekend, Cassie's boyfriend, Matt Beckham. When a detective arrived at the Beckham home to inform Matt that Cassie had been murdered, the young man sat expressionless. 
Matt told the police everything he could remember. That he and Cassie had watched a movie. That Tori and Brian came over. Then left to go to the movies. The strange power outage and how Cassie had been scared. Matt told police that he spent the following day hanging out with Tori, and he had tried repeatedly to call his girlfriend, but couldn't reach her. After hearing Matt's story, police interviewed the only other people who were present that night, Brian and Tori. Both of the boys told police that they had visited the house expecting to find a party. But when they found out that it would just be the four of them, they decided to leave and go to the movie theater instead. They even showed them their tickets. The investigation seemed to be going nowhere. Police looked again at Matt. Concerned with his lack of emotion at the news of his girlfriend's murder, they decided to bring the young man in for a polygraph test. He passed. Police were convinced that Matt was telling the truth. They decided to take a closer look at Brian and Tori. When police questioned them further about their whereabouts that night and asked them questions about the movie they saw at the theater, neither of the boys could recall anything about it. They couldn't remember the plot, the characters, any of the scenes, how it ended, nothing. Strange for two self-proclaimed horror movie addicts. Tori and Brian were lying, and police knew it. They decided to bring in Brian and Tori a third time. When Brian arrived to be polygraphed and interrogated, he started crying. This time, his story changed. Brian admitted that he and Tori had not gone to the movie theater and that they had returned to the house, he claimed, because they wanted to play a prank on Cassie to scare her. But Tori, Brian claimed, went crazy and started stabbing her. Brian said that Tori then told him to stab Cassie and that he did stab her because, he said, he was afraid of Tori. Both Tori and Brian blamed each other for the murder during their interrogations. But Brian didn't just confess to police that he and Tori had murdered Cassie. He provided evidence. Brian said that shortly after the murder, he and Tori dumped everything, the knives, the robes, the masks, in the Black Rock Canyon area. Brian agreed to lead police to the area and showed them the exact location where the evidence was buried. Police uncovered two dagger-style knives, a silver and black-handled knife with a smooth blade, a folding knife with a partially serrated edge, a box of stick matches, a melted bottle of hydrogen peroxide, two partially melted masks, a pair of black boots 
several pairs of gloves, and a black Calvin Klein dress shirt. Among the blood-covered items was a half-burned note and a Sony VHS tape. The writing on the note was not clear, but appeared to be a written plan for the murder, including fragments of what to do if Matt stayed the night or returned to the house. Kill Matt. What police found on the VHS tape was horrifying. The young aspiring film director had been keeping a video diary of the events leading up to and following the murder of Cassie. Brian and Tori had been planning the murder for weeks. While each boy blamed the other for the actual killing, both claiming that they thought it was just going to be a prank and that the other stabbed Cassie, the evidence on the tape told a different story. September 22nd, 2006, morning of the murder, Brian walks up to Cassie in the hallway. Hey, look, it's Cassie. Hey, look, no. Hello, Cassie. Yeah. I'm getting you on tape, okay? Say hi, please. Hi. Okay, see ya. September 22nd, 2006, just after noon, Brian and Tori sit at a table. They've skipped class in order to write out their plan for the murder. Tori is writing notes. Brian speaks to the camera, explaining that Cassie has been chosen to die. September 22nd, 2006. We're skipping our fourth hour. We're writing our plan right now. I'm telling Cassie's family, but she had number one. We have to stick with the plan. She's perfect, so she's going to die. <laughs> September 22nd, 2006, 9.50 p.m., just before the murder. Brian and Tori drive back to the house. Tori is driving. There should be no odd against killing people. I know it's a wrong thing, but hell, 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 you restrict somebody from it, they're going to want it more. We found our victim, and sad as it may be, She's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie's daughter. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. I was 9.50, September 22nd, 2006. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. I locked the back doors. That's all locked. Now we just gotta wait. September 22nd, 2006, approximately 11.30 p.m., just after the murder. Brian and Tori drive away from the house. Tori is driving. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I'm I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just and disappear. Dude, I oh just killed God. Cassie. Oh, oh, fuck. That felt like fucking real. I mean, it went by so Shut fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. On September 27th, 2006, 
Brian Draper and Tori Adamczyk were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. The boys were tried separately, as both pled not guilty, each blaming the other and telling the same story. That they thought it was a prank, that they were just making a movie. That the other had been the one who killed Cassie. Prosecutors in both cases focused on the tapes, which showed premeditation by both boys and were a virtual confession. DNA evidence from the blood on the weapons were a match for Cassie. And the knives had been purchased by Brian and Tori weeks before the murders at a pawn shop. At Tori Adamchik's trial, one of the detectives testified that the partially burned note found among the evidence buried at Black Rock Canyon appeared to have been written by Tori, presumably being the instructions that Tori can be seen writing in the video in which the boys had skipped class and were planning the murder. The prosecution in Brian Draper's case revealed that he was known to be obsessed with the Columbine shooting and that students had reported hearing him talk about it to the high school faculty as early as 2004. Tori was a horror film junkie and was inspired by the movie Scream. He wanted to reenact the film in a real-life murder. On April 17, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of both charges. On June 8, 2007, Tori Adamchik was also found guilty. On August 21, 2007, both Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik received mandatory sentences of life in prison without the possibility for parole and 30 years to life for conspiracy to commit murder. Upon hearing the verdicts, Cassie's mother, Anna, said, Justice is done. It's all for Cassie. Over the next few years, both Brian and Tori attempted to appeal their cases multiple times. All of their attempts failed. The family of Cassie Jo Stoddard was deeply affected by her death and pushed back against every appeal. On the day that Cassie's aunt, uncle, and cousin discovered her body in their home, the family left the residence, never to return. Cassie's 13-year-old cousin, who had found the body, was traumatized. She suffered a breakdown and even attempted suicide. In 2010, the family of Cassie Jo Stoddard filed a civil lawsuit against the Idaho School District, claiming that the school was negligent and should have known that Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik posed a threat to others. Both the civil court and the state Supreme Court dismissed the case. In 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that mandatory sentences of life without the possibility of parole are unconstitutional for juvenile offenders, even in cases of murder. In 2013, 
Brian and Tori were interviewed for a documentary called Lost for Life, which told the stories of juvenile offenders who had been sentenced to life in prison without parole. In Brian's interview, he attempted to explain what was going through his mind at the age of 16. High school is a very hard time. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea where I fit in among my peers. And I thought that I was a nobody in my high school. And I, I wanted to be known. And so I tried all these different identities and I couldn't uh, you, know, you know, find an identity that I could um, not be pushed out of, I guess. So I got into Columbine. Columbine kind of created a subculture for disenfranchised, uh, you know, kids who don't fit in anywhere. I saw at the time they transcended their high school for the hour that they did what they did. They were in the spotlight, and that's what I wanted. I wanted to be in the spotlight. When I first met Cassie's daughter, I think the first memory I have of her is uh, we were joking around in class, and uh, she was smiling, and that's uh, the, the image I have in my mind now, is I you know, can't get that out of my mind. And, uh, oh, man, it's hard to talk about. I, Uh, but in the beginning, uh, she was just a nice person, and uh, she, you know, uh, sorry. I was attracted to her, and I thought uh, she was a special person. But she started going out with uh, this other kid I knew in high school, and it, it kind of struck me hard, and I was like, Okay, so, you know, I am a loser. Brian recalled meeting Tori Adamchik during sophomore year. He started talking about the movie Scream, how it'd be cool to actually do a Scream-type crime. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, have you ever, you know, thought about that? Not really. I mean... I've thought about other things, like, uh, you know, Columbine, uh, and he really wasn't into that. And I was like, well, I could either be alone or I could uh, join his plan and uh, be with him and, and, you know, not be alone. When asked what he remembered about the murders, Brian struggled. I really don't have a lot of... Vivid uh, memories of the actual incident. Uh, I have a, what they call a, a flashbulb. Images of that. She's breathing hard, and and her eyes are open, and she's looking off someplace else. And uh, and then I. I remember uh, Tony, like, 
she wasn't screaming, but in my head I could hear that. And I know she she screamed before it happened to her, and uh, uh, but in my memories I have, sh she's screaming. I don't know if either of us would have done it if we were alone. Brian said. We head off each other, I guess, and it was a formula for disaster in the end, you know. Tori Adamchik refused to take responsibility. In the documentary, Tori is interviewed with his parents, who continually repeat, Tori is a good kid. Tori's a good kid. His father said. Tori's the same person he was when he, before he went in. His mother echoed, Tori is just a kind, kind, kind person, and we're still a family. He's still every bit as much a part of our family as before. Tori and his family told interviewers that they believed that Tori was demonized in the press. I remember the first article I read about my case. Jeez, I mean, they made me sound like this brutal, cold, psychopathic killer. We were talking about Brian. They were making you just like they made, they made, they put us like as the same person. They lumped them together. I only hung out with him for six weeks before this happened. I think it's crazy how the last week of me being on the street, being free, really has affected the rest of my life. If you were to watch that video and nothing had happened, it would literally be a joke. Tori did express some regrets, but they weren't for Cassie. When it did happen, I was just too shocked to do anything, and I just ran from it and hid from it, and I made a lot of mistakes, but they were, I don't know, I just think, I look at myself now, and I'm 21, and I think how stupid I was at 16, and I just think how I feel like I'm paying for somebody else's mistakes at this point. In 2016, the Supreme Court added to their 2012 ruling that the doctrine must be applied retroactively and directed a review of all juvenile cases. Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik's cases were reviewed. Their sentences were upheld. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.